Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History, the world's best podcast. Official. Super exciting to announce that. Great news. Thank you to everybody. Today we've got Anthony Satham, we're talking about nomads, we're talking about nomadic people. People who don't bring food to them, but go to the food. Makes sense. A lot less tiring, apparently. So Anthony Satham's been on this podcast many times before. He's a journalist, author, historian, he's a friend of the pod. It's great to have him back talking about his new book, his new project on nomads. The nomadic people on whom the settled have depended for so much of history. It's fascinating stuff, challenging stuff, folks. You're going to love it. If you want to go and listen to previous podcasts, Anthony Satin, you probably will, then go to History Hit TV. It's the only place you can listen to them. And you get to go there. No ads. It's all a beautiful thing. If you follow the link in the notes of this podcast, just click on that little link. You get sent straight there. Straight there through the interweb, along the optical fiber all cables. You're going to love it. And then you can sign up, you can join the revolution, you can watch our Falklands 40 season, you can watch all sorts of other stuff, uh, hundreds of hours of history documentaries on there, thousands of podcasts, you're going to love it. Head over there and join the revolution. But in the meantime, here is Anthony Satin. Anthony, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me back. What a joy. What is a nomad? How are we defining nomads these days? It changes over time. A nomad a long, long time ago was somebody who had a herd and went looking for pasture. And everything in their lives was dictated by this need for grass or for, for some sort of fodder for their animals. We live in an age of digital nomads and all sorts of other people. But most of my book deals with the other sort. You say looking for grass. That's because it's easier to take your cattle to fresh grass than it is to chop all that grass and bring it to the cattle. That's right, yes. Most herders throughout history and around the world have always uh, moved their herds rather than brought the fodder to them. And we do that here in the UK a lot of the time as well, move the cattle from one or sheep from one field to another. I mean, the word nomad itself, it's a very, very, very old Indo-European word, and it has its roots in looking for pasture. This thorny question we talk about so much on this podcast, but when and how do nomads become separate from town dwellers, city dwellers, static people. 
Well, my book starts 9,500 BC, which is when a group of hunter-gatherers, because they're not properly nomads at that point because they haven't domesticated animals, but a group of hunter-gatherers settle in a place in southwest Turkey called Gobekli Tepe. And they build what we know of so far as the world's oldest stone monuments, you know, properly cut limestone pillars, which they put up. And from there on, you have a sort of divide between those who stay in one place and those who carry on moving. And the problem, presumably, Anthony, is that the people who stay in one place also develop things like writing and archives and books and things and and stone tablets. So I always think when you look at a map of the world, most people were moving around in hunter-gatherer nomadic societies, but the 99% of our energy goes into talking about and remembering and celebrating and studying these settled societies that were presumably not the norm for much of those thousands of years. No, not at all. I mean, our histories, our history books are completely skewed towards the settled because they're written by people who live who live within walls. And, you know, they're words that are captured you know, on paper and then eventually put between covers. And one of the problems for nomadic peoples is that they didn't record very often. They didn't capture on paper. They told stories, you know, there was a huge oral tradition, and there still is. And remember that our Western tradition was originally an oral one as well, things like, you know, uh, Homer, for instance, or the Quran or whatever else. These huge, long texts were not originally written down. They were passed from generation to generation out of memory. We've lost that ability amongst ourselves, but most nomadic people still retain a, this oral tradition. And it's great for them, but it's not so great for them in a world where we place so much value on writing. And the settled people tend to be absolutely terrified of these highly mobile nomadic peoples. So we've got a pretty negative view of them. Well, we do if we look at the way that nomads appear in our histories, because generally most chroniclers, certainly you know, in, in ancient and middle times and medieval times, when they wrote about nomads, they were tending to write about times of conflict. But for most of human history, and this is the point of my book, I mean, there was a sort of mutual dependence. Nomads needed the settled, and the settled needed nomads. They traded with each other. I mean, there's some wonderful texts from ancient Sumer, Mesopotamia, where you have farmers longing for the nomads to come because they're going to graze the stubble after the harvest, and their animals are going to fertilize the fields with their droppings. And then they go away. And of course, there's always this tension of, well, how long will the nomads stay? Will they come at the right time or will they leave at the right time? But there was a mutual dependence because at the same time, nomads had time-sensitive stock. They had meat they wanted to sell and there were things they needed to buy to get through the winters, for instance. So there was most of history. There was a very happy mutual interdependence. But that's not what you get when you read the history books. Because as I said, chroniclers tend to write about conflict. And that's very interesting. So nomads were an important source of animals, food, trap, furs, all sorts of things like that throughout much of history. Yeah, exactly. And leather and all sorts of things. Yeah. And also they carried, because they were mobile, they carried things from one community to another. I raised the possibility about an empire of nomads that stretches the whole way from the borders of the Roman Empire, the Danube or whatever, to the Great Wall of China, the borders of the Han Chinese Empire. This is sort of maybe... 500, 400, 300, 200 BC, there was certainly a confederation of nomad tribes. This is the whole way across Central Asia that may well have been an empire, but we wouldn't recognize them as an empire because they didn't have a capital. 
So they were perhaps more of an alliance, but certainly these people controlled the vast terrain and they moved things from one side to the other. And we know they did because in their burials over near China, they have things from the Roman world and from Persia. And in their burials near the Roman borders, they have things from China. They have silks and things. They're buried with silks and, and Chinese ceramics and glass, for instance. So when we're talking about the silk routes, the silk roads, we may be talking about these peoples. They're doing all this cultural exchange that we keep talking about nowadays. That's right. These are the people who champion open borders. And by the time we get to the Mongols, for instance, we're talking about freedom of conscience as well and freedom of trade. And that's what their entire world was based on. We were talking about the problem of documentation. I mean, these people who I mentioned as Scythians, we don't know what they called themselves. We call them Scythians. We have no idea what they called themselves. And their counterparts in the East, up by the Chinese, the Chinese called them the Xiongnu, but that's certainly not what they called themselves, because it's a Chinese phrase that means illegitimate offspring of slaves. And I'm sure they didn't call themselves that. But these were kingdoms. These were important political and cultural entities. And they did a huge amount of cross-fertilization between the Chinese and the Roman world. It must be so difficult for you when you're writing this book, because you talk about kingdoms. They're quite unrecognizable today, are they? Because they they don't have the kind of things that we've all been trained to look for in kingdoms, which is capitals and castles and bureaucracies that sort of stay in one place and great public works. You get to get into a different mindset when you talk about these empires. Well, that's right. And it's quite hard to know exactly how their social structures worked as well. But there certainly was a kingship. I mean, we know much more if we jump forward a thousand, fifteen hundred years towards the Mongol empires, for instance, Genghis Khan and Timur and the people between them. So that's sort of 11, 12, up to 1500 in our time. And we know, again, they most of the time they didn't build. And when they did build, they didn't necessarily build for the buildings to have the functions that we would understand of a capital. There are lots and lots of examples. For instance, Karakoram, which was the great Mongol capital, it started out as a city of tents, but it did eventually get built as a proper city. But the great Khan only went there on his way to and from his winter or summer grazing. I mean, he passed through for a month or so. You'd have this huge tribal gathering and rewards were given, punishments were given. And the next phase, you know, the next season or whatever, the policy where we're going to fight, where we're going to make treaties, how we're going to maintain ourselves was discussed. And it was the same, for instance, in ancient Persia, jumping back a little bit. Persepolis, which is what we can recognize as a great city, was never a city in the sense that we understood it in the way that Rome was a city. It was only ever properly used once a year for the Norus, for the spring festival. And then you would have all the tribes that made up the Persian Empire and all the tributaries would come and the great emperor or king would be there and would be acknowledged as a ruler. But he didn't live there. Listen to Dan Snow's history. We're talking about nomads. More coming up. Ancient history fans, this is our moment. Over on the Ancients podcast, twice every week, we release new episodes covering topics dedicated to our distant past. Check out the Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Russell Crowe, we're still interested. American politics are all struggle and strategy, passion and persuasion, and so much scandal. And they always have been. 
I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, we're delving into Alexander Hamilton, whose bio was big enough for Broadway. From war to women and a dueling death to boot, Hamilton is a fundamental chapter of the American tale. Join me and a cast of worldly experts to meet the real Alexander Hamilton on American History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. The first track in your book you talk about in the 18th century, you talk about Ben Franklin, and there's this really interesting strain in North American, Canadian, and U.S., thought in the 18th century about the pull of the nomadic lifestyle compared to the settled agricultural lifestyle. And there's this old saying, isn't it, that young men and women, young men in particular, would, if they were taken captive by indigenous tribes in the Americas, they never wanted to go back. It was always kind of one-way traffic. The, the young so-called Indian children would escape from their schools and go back to being, you know, live with the Indian tribes. And also in the same way that White European settlers, would, when given that choice, would also opt to be with the... It gnawed away at the confidence of these colonial settlements, didn't it? Was there something about the indigenous way of life that was better than their way of life? Yes, I mean, and Benjamin Franklin worries about this the whole way through. Here is one of the sort of founders of America, of the United States. He's a signatory of the Declaration of Independence and of the Constitution. And he, all his life, has been settled. He's worked hard. He's, in a way, sort of a very early example of, of the brilliance of the American dream, that you don't have to start out rich or whatever else. He makes a lot of money and he puts it to good use. He sets up a publishing house, for instance, but also creates the first uh, hospital and a university, which turns into Penn State University. But he can't understand how there could be people in the world who are not attracted by what he sees as the advantages of settled society. And he has a debate with somebody who he calls a Transylvanian Tatar, so somebody from Asia, who has come to see what America will become. And this visitor to America is very struck by this problem that they have, that settlers are very happy to go off and do what this visitor calls the wandering life. And Franklin is saying, all of the advantages we have in science and arts and whatever are not enough to keep them. And he recognizes that it's the problem of labor. And it's also a problem of agriculture. And it's a problem of agriculture through the whole of human history since 9,500 BC, when we have the beginning of the agricultural revolution, when we start domesticating crops. And that is, it takes a lot of work. And living life on the move, first as a hunter-gatherer and then as a nomad, is a lot less manual labor. And there are various anthropologists, American in the 20th century, who did studies on this and worked out that you probably need to do about a quarter of the amount of labor as a nomad to support yourself, bed and board, than you do if you're working in a factory in the West. The attraction is obvious. I mean, you've got a lot of labor time or a lot of time to do other things. And also, you're living in nature. And so coming back to this example of the Native Americans who the settlers were very happy to go back there. But when the settlers invited a whole lot of Native American children to come and study and learn, you know, and all the great advantages of the West, the elders say, I think this is Iroquois, say, well, we tried that once before, but when our kids came back, they were good for absolutely nothing. They didn't know how to hunt. They didn't know how to read the trees. They didn't know the properties of the plants. Why would we want to do that again? As we talk about in mental health today, the gigantic crisis of mental health in the urbanised world, and physical health. What do you think the nomads can teach us today? 
Well, one of the most glaringly obvious things that nomads know that we, particularly in cities, and remember that more than half of all humans now live in an urban environment, it's very easy to forget that we are all completely dependent on everything in the natural world, on our planet. We're in a biosphere, and until very recently, it hadn't been proven, but it has now been proven, that if something happens on one side of the planet, we lose a species that is important. We're going to suffer all of us. But when you live in, in the natural world, and nomads certainly know this, that you are dependent, you are just an equal. You don't live in dominion over nature, you live as part of it. It's something that certainly in the West has been going on since, I mean, I write about Francis Bacon, the 16th, 17th century philosopher, who talks about the need to dominate nature, to try and fight our way back into Eden. And we're going to do it by studying everything, learning everything, understanding the property of everything, so we can dominate it. And that begins you know, a sequence of events that leads us to where we are today, where we clearly can't undo some of the damage that we've done. In spite of all the wonderful advances in technology, we can't undo that. And that's something that nomads are very, very aware of, because they are the first to suffer the consequences, for instance, of a warming climate. And a lot of the big movements of nomads, for instance, when they start moving into the Roman Empire that bring about the fall of the Roman Empire when the Huns come and the Goths, is to do with warming climate. And these nomads who have to come off the steppes of Central Asia and push across the Danube into the Roman Empire because they need to feed their flocks. These are things that nomads know that we in the city find it very easy to forget. Why are there so few nomads around? Talks about the great historical processes by which were they forced to be settled? Were they lured into it? Were they threatening to people like the Russian Empire and the British? And was that a process of forcible settlement in many cases? <laughs> I write quite a bit about the um, settlement of North America because I think that's quite poignant in our time. And the Pilgrim Fathers, 1600s, they start off negotiating with the native tribes, very soon start, well, within 100 years, start pushing back very hard against them. And by the 19th century, are passing laws in the US Senate against people who are not their subjects. Effectively, laws are passed that announce that the whole of the North American continent is for the settlers. And bit by bit, the Native Americans are squeezed into reservations. And out of that comes nothing very happy for the Native Americans. The governor of California recently described as genocide what was done to the Native Americans of California by settlers. That's a very loaded term, particularly in our times and particularly in the United States, because it carries legal consequences, which therefore carry financial consequences in terms of reparations and things like that. But that's a process that has happened throughout the world. There are obviously some places where nomads continue to thrive, for instance, nomads in Iran, simply the landscape in Iran is so harsh, most of it, it's upland, a lot of it is desert, and if it's not desert, it's mountain. It's simply not good for farming. In Europe, by contrast, we have massive industrialized farms because the land is very good for that. But so in Iran, there is still a ministry of, of nomadic affairs. The nomads in Iran produce, I think, something like a third of the country's meat. They are still a significant player. And the government is still trying to settle them because you can't tax people. It's quite difficult to control people if they're not in one place. I mean, that's, again, this sort of age-old thing, the problem that nomads can understand the settled, but the settled seem to struggle understanding nomadic needs. 
And so the Iranian government, even though they need the nomads, are still encouraging them to settle. There's a sort of conflicting policy. And so they encourage them, as I've seen encouraged in Egypt and, and elsewhere, that in places that I know very well. The government will encourage nomads with healthcare. You know, your elderly need looking after, but you need to be in one place for us to do this. And your children need an education. So it's settle down and we'll provide this. But there are consequences to that because with that comes the end of a, a way of life that stretches back to the dawn of time and is older, a lot older than the habit of being settled. And some of us, there's been some fascinating research done in the United States in Northwestern University that have identified what some people, not the academics involved, have described as a nomadic gene. And these researchers did genetic research into successful nomads in East Africa. And they found a variant gene in the successful nomads that the less successful nomads didn't have. And they found that same gene in children in the United States who are suffering from what is described as attention deficit disorder. And the suggestion behind this is that these children are not they don't have a problem. They're just in the wrong place or they're being asked the wrong question. And the idea behind that is what they're being asked is what's one plus one? It's two. But for them, it might also be four halves or eight quarters. And what we in settled, particularly urban societies are encouraged to do is to think in the box, to think along a straight line. You know, our educational systems are not designed for creative thinking. And yet when you're a nomad, to be a successful nomad, you have to constantly come up with a variety of solutions for every situation because you don't know what's going to happen next. And that's nomadic thinking. Be more nomad, folks. Be more nomad. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. What's the book called? The book is called Nomads, The Wanderers Who Shaped Our World. And they did shape our world. Read it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks, folks. You've reached the end of another episode. Hope you're still awake. Appreciate your loyalty. Sticking through to the end. If you fancied doing us a favour here at History Hit, I would be incredibly grateful if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give it a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great. Please head over there and do that. It really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please head over there and do that. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.